Reading this morning from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 29. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread through the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Continuing to read in Acts chapter 12, verses 25 to Acts 13, verse 3. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission... They returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Fantastic. Thank you so much to everyone who's led this morning. It's good to see so many new faces. It's good to see old faces. That doesn't sound quite right, does it? It doesn't mean that everybody's aged incredibly. I did wonder, actually, when David was doing the, you know, this is how it used to be, and showing the old hall that was falling down, whether a picture of me was suddenly going to appear. And, you know, this is how it used to be in the past. And it's just fantastic to see how things have moved on. It's so exciting and encouraging. Encouraging. I'm acutely aware that probably about half of you won't have a clue who I am, but just so that I don't have to repeat the same thing uh, 20, 30, 40 times in a moment, just a very brief update on our family. Uh, Rachel and Joe are getting on really well. Rachel is getting married in the summer in August. Joe is at university in Brighton, University of Sussex. Uh, they're both going on really well Christian-wise, so it's really, really encouraging and exciting. 
And I am well supported in a lovely, sprawling, complicated church in Leeds, where after a period of stagnation, we're beginning to see some real growth. So a lot of conversions and baptisms across our different sites. And that's really, really exciting to see some new staff members joining. But I always think that church is fragile. And I've put this picture up on the screen. We're thinking about church life. And I know that you're going through a series in respect of this. And I just think this this picture sums up the glory and the fragility of the church. You have this very, very delicate growing plant and the sense that someone could just come along and could slamp on it and it could be all over. And yet God in his grace and mercy holds the church and is working in and through the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we are encouraged by this glorious thing that is the church with all its complications, with all the mess and stuff that sometimes comes up, but with all that God is doing as he builds a people and as others come in to the life of the church. Fantastic. Thinking about the church as it could be, the church as God intends it to be. And this image of uh, a beacon of hope. I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings buff, but there's this scene in the 2003 film. I'm not actually, I've never read any of the books. I've never got on with them, but I quite enjoyed some of the films. And there's this amazing scene where the battle is at its worst. It's the return of the king. And a little hobbit manages to climb up and light a beacon And then you see some amazing cinematography as in the darkness these different beacons are lit. And Gandalf says, hope is kindled. It's a a wonderful image. And again, a wonderful picture of the church as a beacon of hope. And as we get into the text, you see that this church in Antioch is the church as it could be. The church as God intends it to be. The New Testament church is not perfect, and for sure this church in Antioch is not perfect either. can be very discouraging if we idealize the early church or we idealize the church in another time and place because we think when we experience problems that, that something has gone wrong. But actually, church is always like that. Nevertheless, there is a a wonderful example here of a church that is growing, a church that is vibrant, where there is the power of the Holy Spirit, where there is fidelity to the Word of God, where there is mission, and there is much more that is going on. And the challenge then is to think about this church and to think about ourselves and to hear the encouragement and the challenge 
of the Word of God. What is it about this church that is particularly special and is there for us to emulate? So very, very simple and straightforward this morning. First of all, it is grounded in Jesus and the gospel. Let's just hear again some of the wonderful verses here. They embrace the good news about the Lord Jesus. They are encouraged by Barnabas and Saul to remain true to the Lord. And they are helped by the teaching of Barnabas and Saul. Just want to zero in on that phrase, encouraged to remain true to the Lord. So that they're receiving deep teaching. I think we can assume that particularly the teaching of Saul is, is going deeply into the scriptures. It's challenging. It's stretching. We see that in the letters that he later writes. But in a very real sense, he's not bringing them a new thing. He is saying you need to remain true to the Lord, to his gospel, to his word, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's not saying you came to believe in Jesus and that's really exciting. You received the Holy Spirit, you have the gospel, and now in order to grow, you need something else. You need this program, you need this new message, you need this new fad if you're going to be strong as a church. No, he says you need to remain true to the Lord's. That doesn't mean stagnating spiritually, but it does mean going deeply into the essentials of the faith, the things of God and the gospel. God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God who has revealed himself through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. Jesus, who came and lived and died and rose again and is ascended into heaven and is coming again. The essential contours of the gospel, they are to remain true to the Lord. Sometimes we can think, you know, this isn't such an exciting message. I had a story of a church where they used to do a sort of drama every Easter, and they would reenact the crucifixion, but especially focus on the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is alive. And a couple came to the pastor once and said, you know, this, this drama that we do, can't, can't we do something different? Can we, can we not do something different this year? And the pastor simply said, this year Jesus is once again going to rise from the dead. I hope that that doesn't disappoint you. I, Got sympathy with the pastor, of course, but I've also got sympathy with the couple because I know from my own journey, you think, you know, is there, is there this new program? Is this new thing that you can do that we need to be focusing on? But actually, it's remaining true to the Lord with all our hearts. The way into the Christian faith is the way on in the Christian faith. We don't get into new stuff. We go deeper into God and the gospel. And this is what this church is doing. And so here we have a church that is grounded 
in Jesus and the gospel. That's much better. Moved on first time. Praying and fasting. You see that at the beginning of chapter 13 in this amazing church. I'm going to say a little bit more about developing our relationship with God in the service this evening. So I will do this one quickly. But the encouragement is just to give ourselves to prayer and indeed to fasting, to know God deeply and intimately. And you notice that they do this. And then out of this, there is a a new missionary move. Paul and Barnabas are, are sent out. They are sent off. And there is this wonderful forward movement from the gospel that flows out of prayer and fasting. One of the things that happens as you journey through life is that you learn things about yourself, about the church, about God. But the most important lesson is one that I, I know that I have to constantly learn and relearn, that nothing is more important than our relationship with God and the challenge that I I give myself that whatever is going to happen I want to be a pastor who prays who is not stagnating in his relationship with God who who knows God who loves God and wants to press on in that may God challenge us all about the priority of seeking God in prayer and in fasting And then we see that this is a church that knows the presence and the activity of God. It's shot right through this reading. Barnabas is full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They respond to a prophetic word. And the Lord's hand, verse 21, is with them. It's an image of power and authority. It's redolent of the Old Testament, uh, of Exodus 3. The Lord's hand is with his people. In the Old Testament, in Exodus, the Lord's hand was with his people to free them from slavery, to bring them to the promised land, for them to have a, a place under the rule of God. God was building his people, and the same image is used here. God's power is at work in and through this people. And we need the power. These are are simple but profound lessons. I always used to say to our students at Spurgeon's College, sometimes that the simple things are the most important things. And that simplicity of knowing the power of God in our lives and in our church. Praying daily for the equipping and the help and the strengthening and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Covering everything that we do as the people of God in prayer. One of the new initiatives that we're doing in Leeds on our Headingley site, we are getting more involved in 24-7 prayer. We sent our interns to a prayer conference in Belfast. We're getting a 24-7 prayer room that is set up and going to have a, a launch week in November. And it's just so exciting and having prayer events across our different sites. And, and I just sense that, that this is really the most important thing 
that we're doing. It's not that our prayers have particular power, but we have a prayer answering God. And we see in the scriptures, and we see in Christian history, and we see in contemporary experience again and again that when God's people humble themselves and they pray, then God comes in power and he works. And uh, a powerless church is going to be in deep difficulty. I don't know if you remember this. It's a while ago now. The Viking Sky, a cruise ship that lost power and was at the mercy of the elements, the wind and the waves. You can see the angle that it's at in the picture. It's not the sort of ship that you would want to be traveling on if you get seasick, and it's not the sort of ship you'd want to be on in any circumstances if you are just drifting about. The church without power is a church that is drifting. And I want to encourage you, as I encourage myself, as the people of God here in this place, to seek the power of the Holy Spirit, to be people who pray for God to be at work, for God to come and to lead and direct and overall to bring men and women to know Christ as Savior and Lord, to help us as we engage in bringing about community transformation. Next thing is a generous church. You see the example of Barnabas in verses 25 and 26. Always think this is an extraordinary thing. Barnabas, who was probably a really gifted guy, someone who was a good speaker, he was godly, he was passionate, but he didn't have an ego. He didn't stand on ceremony. And he knew that he needed help. And so he went to collect Saul. And just by Saul's amazing giftedness and force of personality and the way that God had anointed him, Barnabas was clearly going to be playing second fiddle. But that didn't matter because it's kingdom priorities. And it may even be that God is speaking to someone about that right now and saying you you need help in a ministry that you're doing you you need to bring someone else in and it may be then that you'll you'll play second place but God has a, a special blessing for someone who takes that path someone who recognizes that they need help and there is this extraordinary generosity that Barnabas has. And then the financial generosity of the church in verses 29 and 30. This is something that is very real in respect of our faith. Heard many years ago in the era of charismatic renewal, it's so easy sometimes to raise our hands in worship. And I, I love to do that myself, to give God praise and glory. But there are times when God is calling us to put our hands down, put, us, put them in our pockets metaphorically, and give to the work of God. You know, sometimes someone who is visiting can say this more than the pastor can say this. And I like it when people come to our church and say this. And so in 
Let's give to the work of God. Let's think about what can be done as finances are released and to be a generous church, generous with time, generous with ourselves, generous with the finances that God has blessed us with. A missional church. They're grounded in the gospel, but they didn't stagnate uh, spiritually or missionally. And they are prepared to give away their best people, uh, Saul and Barnabas, in mission. And they are seeking to reach out as a church. I know that I've used this illustration here before, but it's, it's one that constantly challenges me about the difference between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. If you go to the Dead Sea today, it is, as the name suggests, pretty dead. It's very, very salty. Nothing really grows there around it. There's nothing that can really stay alive within it. And there is no outlet. The water gets in, but it doesn't flow out. On the other hand, if you go to the Sea of Galilee, it's teeming with life. There's there's fish, there's loads of activity, it supports people, and the water flows in and the water flows out. There is an outlet, there is that generosity, there is that giving, there is that missional heart. And exactly the same in the life of the church. If we're just holding everything tightly, and if we maybe focusing on on good teaching and the relationships that we have. Those things are so positive and so important. But on its own, it just eventually turns bad. If it's not being given away, if there's not that missional heart, if there's not water flowing out as well as flowing in, then the church will stagnate and there will be death rather than life. And I want to encourage you in terms of the missional impulse of the church to be engaging in God's mission to the wider community. And wherever God sends you, in your places of work, in your families maybe, in the communities where you live, be a missional people. And then finally, the place to belong. I think Acts chapter 13 is just extraordinary verses. I've written about this in in my book on discipleship and just seeing people from different backgrounds come together. If you're, you're following this through, just have a look at the opening verses with me. There are prophets and teachers Uh, There is Barnabas himself, but then we are introduced to a range of other people. Lists of names can sometimes be dull and boring, but in the Bible that's not the case, and it's certainly not the case here. You have Simeon called uh, Niger or Niger, almost certainly a black man from North Africa. Lucius of Cyrene, who was also from North Africa, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So probably Jewish, but almost certainly 
compromised, someone who had been in the court of the hated King Herod, looked down on by the Pharisees, by those who were were seeking to follow the law and trying to be faithful to God's will for their lives. Here was someone who was a, a compromiser, a collaborator with the hated Roman regime. And then who's next on the list? Well, it is Saul himself, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, this man who had persecuted the church, this man who was 180 degrees opposed to someone like Manaean. And you have these people who have come together, different backgrounds, different races, different upbringing, different outlook. And yet in the gospel, there is that unity of purpose. Jesus has brought them together. Admittedly, they're all men at this point. But as we spread out and we look through the book of Acts, we have Dorcas, who has a crucial social ministry in Acts 9. You have Lydia, whose heart is opened in Acts 16 to receive the message. As we go on into the letters, we see women and men working together. The great list in Romans 16 that Paul sets out. You have every class, every background, every race in the known world. People who had a religious background, those who didn't. Jew and Gentile together in one church, one family. People engaging in leadership. People engaging in God's ministry according to their gifts and their calling and working together. And this church is just this extraordinary place to belong. And this is just a huge encouragement and a challenge. Think about our nation, think about the divisions that there are. Brexit is the obvious thing. And and in Leeds, I suspect that the lines are more sharply drawn than there are here. And there there is real division and there is there is real struggle sort of but it it's just a wonderful place to be but in ter- in terms of the sort of culture and in terms of the city there is that division there is a sense that things are fragmented that they're fractured and here in this church in acts 13 there is the answer demonstrated the answer lived out people coming together brought together because they are part of one family, because they follow Jesus, because they're committed to his word, because they they love God, and because of that, they love each other. And the differences that separate them, the barriers that are there, have just come down. May there be no barriers in this church between races and cultures. No barriers in respect of background. No barriers in respect of gender. No barriers in respect of age. One family. And that one family demonstrates the glory and the wonder of the gospel and the difference 
that Jesus makes. Bruce Mill, speaking about the church that he used to pastor, which was multicultural to the nth degree, people from perhaps a hundred different races and backgrounds meeting together. He said, the very best evangelist in this church is this church. The church itself, its body life, the fact that he had demonstrated is something that is profoundly countercultural. We see that in the church in Antioch. We see that in embryo in many churches across our land. May, may we see that in God's church in North Leeds and here in Shirley and in many cases across our land. May we be beacons of hope, shining out to others with the glory of the wonder of the gospel that is spoken out and is also demonstrated by our life together.